we go. Welcome to Big Jim's Garage. I'm your host, Big Jim O'Brien, or as I like to call myself, Cottonwood Throat. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Powering through. Lots, lots to get to this this episode. We're going to talk with Ted Ryan. He's the chief historian for Ford, Ford Motor Company, one of the most interesting guys I've ever met in the auto industry, period. And he's relatively new. He's brought in from Coca-Cola. All the archives for Ford Motor Company have been going through that, but he's going to give a historical perspective on the Mach 1. They brought back the Mach 1 for next year. So if you're a Mustang guy, come on, the Mach 1's so cool. The paint scheme, too, that they did for this is beautiful. So we'll talk with Ted in a minute. But our first guest, Alex Roy. Alex Roy is one of those just people you want to sit down, have a drink with, and dinner, and just talk. So many amazing things in his life. Driving all over the world. Across the country in 32 hours, I think it was, you know, in his documentary Apex, which is fantastic, a must-watch. But it's so much more than just going fast in a car. The research he did, the planning, the the, the mental part of it as well is, is a huge part. And he's just a neat guy. So that's where we're going to start off with this episode of In the Garage. By the way, make sure you subscribe, B-Pod Studios, everywhere that you subscribe for a normal podcast, and you can follow along with all these. And I would also encourage you to kind of go back in the archives as well. We've got interviews with Bobby Unser, Jackie Stewart, Bob Seeger talking about cars. We spent a whole half hour talking about cars. It's, it, it's that kind of stuff on there. There's some really neat ones, but this one, I'm really proud of this episode. Again, we start off with Alex Roy. Okay, Alex Roy here. The best compliment I can give you. My wife is not a gearhead. It's just not her thing. I started watching the documentary. She was on her iPad. 20 minutes into it, she'd put her iPad down and watch the whole movie with me. Oh, that's very sweet. Thank you so much. Because I think it's underplayed about the racing part across America, which obviously is the whole story about how you did, you know, do it in 31 hours. But there's a mental component to this and the dedication that you had. And there's so many little things that happened during this. It's really well done, dude. It's really well done. Well, I really appreciate that. You know, uh, it, it couldn't we couldn't have made the movie if we hadn't met all the guys and girls who had done this back in the eighties and seen their footage, uh, because the, the psychology of these, of these people, uh, was like, they became like my mentors even before I went out and tried. So, so for people who don't know, and we're talking about the, the U S express, right? That was, so the, the cannonball run really was what, four or five years. How many years did they actually do the cannonball run? So, so the Cannonball Run, the, the actual race, which was called the Cannonball Sea to Shining Sea Memorial Trophy Dash, took place between 1971 and 1979, and it ran basically five times. Um, the, the U.S. Express folks, a lot of them were Cannonball veterans who really felt that it had become a bit of a circus. And they wanted to try to professionalize it, make it really secret, and quote-unquote, safer. Right. But the Cannonball Run... And in, in its in its first form was really more of a statement about when they when they knocked down to fifty five miles an hour, right? It was like we have safe roads, we can go faster, we're going to prove it. That's right, because Brock Yates, who was uh, one of the editors of Car and Driver magazine in nineteen seventy one, said, you know, something like he I mean he was kind of a libertarian and he really wanted to make a political statement, and he also <laughs> he also liked driving fast. <laughs> <laughs> So then he, when he did that with Gurney, right? Yeah, so yeah, Dan Gurney, which was uh, the, the American F1 champion, they went cross-country in a Ferrari Daytona. I think the time was 30, 
35, 50. And I can't remember the exact time. I mean, there's been a lot of people who got cross country now in the last 40, 50 years. Uh, and so they went across. And after they did that, he's like, you know something? We absolutely could put on an illegal race, right or wrong. Right. So when you're doing in, in Apex, Alex, when you're doing your run, how many people knew you were going to go do this? So, you know, in 2005, uh, I had just read the, the Brock Yates book called Cannonball. And he right. said in that book, it is absolutely impossible that anyone will ever get across America in less than 38 hours. And so I was convinced that it might be possible, but I was scared. So I made my mother sign a non-disclosure, my, my girlfriend, uh, and maybe I guess we had probably 10 or 15 people involved. Everybody signed non-disclosures. We kept it top secret. I was convinced we were going to go straight to jail just for trying. I am. T- I mean, I-, I still just as a little side note, how much crap? I almost said shit. Uh, how much crap? There you go. Um, how much did you catch for the Letterman interview when you did that? Uh, you know, at that point, you know, I had spoken to an attorney. Uh, We've gone across a couple of times by then. And I was informed that you should wait one year and one day because the, the statute of limitations expires in most of the states cross country uh, in about a year. Some places are three years. Some the statute never expires. So uh, by the time I'd gone on Letterman, I was feeling pretty comfortable we're going to be okay. And, of course, I was told not to give away all the secrets about how we did it. Right. Um, my biggest fear my whole – all this time, all these years, has been that someone else would go faster or try and someone would get hurt. And I, I was always – to bear that responsibility is something I just never wanted. During the documentary, because you used a plane, it didn't work all the time. Again, people will see this <laughs> in the documentary. But when you mentioned that the, the guys who drove the Ferrari and set the record, when they used a plane, one of the, the people you were interviewing, he looked genuinely pissed when he found out about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the, the classic line from uh, the Cannonball from Brock Yates is, there are no rules. Right. Uh, but, of course, there have to be, like, gentlemen's rules. So it's got to be one car the whole way, four wheels on the ground. Because al- allegedly some people in the past had two identical cars in different sides of the country and then flew across and jumped in the second car. There's no rule against a spotter plane. Um, in reality, the plane was not that big a help, but it did make for amazing footage. I don't think anyone will ever be crazy enough to bring a plane again or have footage like we captured. How has Waze changed the idea of doing this? Well, you know, a lot of people forget that back in the 70s and 80s, imagine going across country without a GPS. No right. one would do I mean, it's, it's insane. And paper maps, like, it's insane. So today, I think a lot of people don't even understand how they would go somewhere without uh, something like Google Maps or Waze. And we spent, you know, probably at least a year researching everything using Google Earth, Google Maps to find out in advance where police might be. And that was a colossal, I mean, thousands of hours of labor to figure out. And today, Waze solves it, you know, in a, a one-minute download. Yeah, that was one hell of a D-Base 3 you had spread out there, man. <laughs> well, you're a submarine guy. Yeah. This, doing something like what we did is like being in a submarine uh, where you're transiting from one patrol zone to another at max, you know, max speed, and you don't know what's out there, so you're running as deep as possible, hoping no one can track you. And then from time to time, you get pinged. Right. It is exactly the same, except that we're not protecting the country. 
But that level of trust that you've got to have not only in your charts and, and Dave when you're driving along with him, and he's got to have the same in you. Um, yeah, it's wow. I never, I, that's a great comparison. Um, who was in the back seat? Uh, in the back seat was Corey Wells. So Corey's a, a documentary film producer, and for many years before our drive, she was working on a documentary called 32 Hours, 7 Minutes because she was the goddaughter of Doug Turner, who set the 32-hour, 7-minute record in 83. And really? so she began working on a movie about them, and then we became friends and decided the movie should be about both the veterans and us in the modern era. The funniest part is she's pretty quiet during the whole documentary. But when you guys get close to the end, she suddenly, all of a sudden we start hearing her. I'm going, who's that? She's like barking at you guys. Get off here. Come on. You can do this. I mean, she really leaned in towards the end of it. Well, you know, a lot of people who are successful in life take credit for it and and often think that they're just really smart. But sometimes a little bit of luck and sometimes – you need to admit that you could never have done it alone. And so at the end, we were really tired. And Corey, who lives in L.A., had to give us advice um, because the miracle of our record isn't that we did it. It's that we did it despite my mistakes. What do you mean? I made a wrong, couple of wrong turns. Uh, I, you know, was, I didn't always pay attention to the scanner. Um, I didn't check the radio uh, that it was going to transmit to the plane. And so you have all these mistakes, and so you have to hope that you have planned enough redundancy and backup, and you can trust your co-pilot that all the planning can make up for your mistakes. And that's the truth of any successful plan. Yeah, but you had some really interesting. You were, you and Dave were dealing with the truckers. I thought you were you were very wise and very aware of that like you mess with the truckers, they're going to get you. They 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 yeah. you know and and literally I don't know if that was just edited for the movie, but it felt like two minutes later, here come the cops. Well, uh, you know, the, the movie, you know, it would be great to watch the 31-hour version of this movie to see the whole thing. But basically, Dave was a little bit more aggressive than I was, and I was <laughs> cautious, if you could say that doing this includes any caution. And uh, one of the things that Dave did is he made a pass that I wasn't so happy about, and then we switched drivers, and then I got pulled over basically because of his pass. Right. And that's the scene. That's like the center scene of the film. Well, that's always something, you know, you think about the U.S. versus Europe with driving. And you, you've experienced this, Alex, that, you know, um, if you pass somebody on the right in Europe, you're getting hammered with a big ticket. Yet here in the States, I'm driving to work this morning here in the Motor City, and there's people passing on the right all day. I'm like, nobody, they don't think that same way about driving, especially in respect to trucks, that, you know, you, you, you show them more respect because, well, they're bigger, they can run your ass right off the road. Well, you know, if maybe if we taught physics a little better in our schools, people have a better understanding of the responsibility that comes with driving a car at any speed. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's that's why I mean, education matters. Like knowledge of math and science matter. Uh, a lot of people think you can just get in a car and do something like this and get away with it. You can't. It takes a, a, a monstrous amount of planning and prep. And and you know, Dave, he's a he's a racing instructor in his spare time. You know, he's done a lot of racing in his life. Uh, and there's a reason he was able to drive faster than I was, more you know, more safely than I could at those speeds. He was so composed. You guys both were. I mean, you, you could see that. <laughs> Where's the car? Who's got the car? Uh, the car is at the same mechanic who, who worked on it 20 years ago. Uh, not really in storage, but if I pull that car out in, a, in the tri-state area, 
chances are a cop will recognize it. I will get pulled over and they want to ask questions. Really? Um, you know, yeah, I, you know, I don't speed anymore. I drive like a baby. So that car is a kind of a museum piece. And eventually I'm probably going to donate it to a museum um, and probably give the money to charity. That would be fantastic. You should. You should. Absolutely. Um, well, you know, we need more driver's education in this country. And I think that, you know, there are probably a lot of kids out there who benefit from it. And our roads should be safer. Absolutely. And do you, as a side note, um, we see the horsepower stuff. It, it's funny now, like, you know, we romanticize muscle cars, especially here in Detroit where we're taping this. You know, but we look back now, you had a goat, you had a roadrunner, you, you know, had a Camaro, whatever you were running. It was a couple hundred horsepower. That was it. Now we're getting cars that come out of the box with over 700 horsepower. Is there a point where it's just kind of stupid? Well, you know, if you look at some of these uh, you know, new electric cars, you know, I, I drive a Tesla uh, as my daily. Uh, you know, the performance of most modern cars, even like a Camry, is better than a lot of the sports cars and supercars you could buy 20, 30, 50 years ago. Uh, a Camry today will out, you know, outrun, in most ways, an old Ferrari 308. So what our problem is that the average person's skills are so far sh- they fall far short of the capabilities of most cars on the road. It doesn't matter what horsepower is because you can hurt someone at any speed. Right. We need people to be better educated. Um, but the horsepower wars will never end because what do we love as kids? You know, we open up, we watch Top Gear, we watch car shows, and we memorize the specs. And the specs will always get better. It's important that we do too. Hey, I was doing a review of a Celica. Nobody, none of the kids in the neighborhood came by my driveway. I pulled up in a Shelby 500. <laughs> it was packed. That's the thing. A car doesn't have to drive to inspire us. It doesn't have to move. We know what something is and means by how it looks. And if it could back it up, it becomes dangerous, but maybe in a good way. So is that the takeaway from when I'm watching Apex? To me, it was like the fact that, that you guys were so driven, pardon the pun, motivated to get this done and to do it, and you did it. You stuck with it. When a lot of people would have walked away, and, and whether that's a function of you know, your financial comfort, comfort, being comfortable financially to do this. But I think it's way beyond that. The amount of work you put into it, there is a lesson to be learned there about sticking with it. I'll tell you this. Roger Bannister was the first guy to break the four minute mile as a runner. And a lot of people said a four minute mile would never be broken. But this guy who was a, you know, a college student, he did the research and figured out the science behind how to do it. But it took human willpower. After Bannister broke the four-minute mile, hundreds of people broke it who didn't have that scientific background that he did. They broke it because they saw an example. They understood that something could be done. And that's the lesson of life is that, I mean, the, the, whatever money went into the car, like, did not matter. Because since we went across, dozens of people have done it. And a few people have done it faster because they understood that it could be done. And that is the way of life. If you can do better, we have to try. It doesn't matter science, medicine, technology, going to the moon, going to Mars. Right. Uh, people have to try, and they have to, you know, they have to be committed. What do Yoda say? There is no try, only do. Only do. Only do. And then um, the guy that I wanted to hang, though, in the documentary, the guy I wanted to hang out with is the dude who drove the motorcycle without going to the bathroom. Oh, George Egloff. Oh, so my this God. This guy, Egloff, he, you know, he, he's probably one of the most legendary Americans and American racers there ever was. And uh, I, I, I wish we could make a whole movie about him because uh, <laughs> we had a lot more footage than we could fit in there. You know, I met a guy a few years ago uh, who came to my house. I, never, I didn't know him. Uh, and um, his name was John Ryan. He was from Alaska. He 
drove alone from Prudhoe Bay, Alaska to Key West, Florida. I think it was in 87 hours. Wow. Uh, only for gas. Yeah, only for gas. And no one knew who he was then. And even today, he's unknown. There's a book about him called The Man Who Would Stop at Nothing. And many years after his, his feat, which is true, it, it should be in the Guinness Book of World Records, he was hit and killed by a, a distracted driver in New Jersey who was looking at her phone texting. And this is, um, it is very, very important that we, that we improve ourselves and respect others um, because that will haunt me for the rest of my life. Wow. I hope we get to a point where distracted driving becomes as harsh a penalty as drunk driving. Uh, it should be. And, you know, many years ago, I, my, I think, <laughs> I forget what year it was. I got a ticket, like a five-point ticket, for looking at my phone um, at a red light. And uh, since then, I, I, I do not do that. People need to take responsibility. Yeah, you just turn it off. Well, that's the other, the, the other part of this, again, um, uh, the documentary Apex, The Secret Race Across America, is out now, Alex. It's awesome. But you're involved with, with autonomous driving. And I, ever, I, I just to give you a little background, probably about eight, nine years ago, they had the ITS, the World Congress, here in Detroit. So went out there, sat in the back seat of a, a, a level five autonomous vehicle and drove around Belle Isle. And it was a close course, but we sat in the back. I guess really technically level four because someone was in the front seat, but they weren't doing anything. And I was watching it, and, and, and I became obsessed with it because that's where we're going, whether we like it or not. But isn't that the problem right now with, with autonomous driving? we got to make people like it? Well, look, eventually uh, autonomous driving will solve um, many of the safety issues that we observe on the road every day in cities um, that drive us nuts and that hurt a lot of people. That's a good thing. Uh, it's going to take time, but a lot of things take time. All innovation takes time. Uh, and based on what I've seen, I'm very, I'm very confident that someday it will solve these problems. And as a New Yorker who's sat in a lot of traffic in my life, <laughs> I can't wait for it. Because uh, it won't just solve some safety problems. It's also going to make it easier, more convenient. You know? And a lot of folks who can't afford a car, uh, who don't have bus service or train service, will be able to get places they can't get today. Um, so... But the reality is we all should be you know, probably buying bicycles and getting more exercise right. um, no matter what. And if you're on a bike, you want cars to be safer. And autonomous cars will solve part of that. So are we going to be more V to V or V to X as far as the vehicles go? Uh, well, that's going to depend it depends on where you are. Um, you know, how they will be deployed is complicated. Um, and it's going to take time. Different places, uh, you may get one standard. Different places, you may get, you may get infrastructure. Um, it's, if you look back at how electrical grids were built in the late 19th century and think about the competing standards and systems, but today we, take, we just have electricity. What do you think about it? Sure. Um, those, those issues will be ironed out. So with the media, every time you see a Tesla crash, when it happens, which isn't a lot, but when you do see it, the media, the way, the way that we handle it as the media, are we, are we simply going for clickbait? Or is there some underlying thing where we don't want to tear down the auto industry? Well, to be clear, you know, I drive a Tesla and I use autopilot, which is a driver assistance system. It's not right. autonomous. It's not self-driving. It's level three, and right? When it's, uh, not, it's actually level two. Oh, it is. Um, okay. okay. Yeah, because the driver is 100% responsible for what goes on in a level two vehicle. So, you know, people have, uh, who use driver assistance a lot uh, over time uh, overtrust the system. 
And then there's a thing called skill decrement. Your skill goes down because you spend too much time relying on the technology. And then, of course, you have this other thing, cognition, which is even if you're looking at the road, you're not, your mind is not engaged with what you're doing. So if you take skill decrement and you know, cognition decline, um, you're going to have a crash. doesn't matter how much driver assistance you put in there. And that's what happens when these Teslas crash. But Tesla's getting, in a way, um, they're just the, the, getting the heat for something that will affect any vehicle that has driver assistance that's not well designed. Uh, and in the future, driver assistance will have things like driver monitoring systems, like with a camera that look, checks, you know, looks at your eyes to make sure you're looking at the road. And over time, that'll get solved too. Uh, so you know, technology is only as good or as bad as we choose it to be. And you know, until level four automation is here, we've got to take responsibility and understand how to use it. Um, it's interesting. It really is because there is a, in any new technology, it doesn't matter what it is. Um, when the iPhone first came out, people didn't know how to use it. They didn't. They were like, where's the pad? How do I, what do I do? Remember looking at an iPhone going, what the hell is that? Copy and paste. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, over time we've evolved and now we, you know, thinking about, you know, our, our phone is so not a phone anymore. It's a computer we walk around with. The last thing we do is call people. Well, you know, the reality is uh, every generation has looked at the prior one and said, you know, uh, what do we need this for? And then people have learned to use new technologies and, and, may, and you know, invented great things out of it. Right. I, uh, TikTok and things like that don't make a lot of sense to me. And I guess maybe I'm getting old. I'm 48. And yet uh, I've seen some really well-produced TikTok videos. Um, you know, everyone gets older. Um, uh, new technologies are invented. We adapt with them. Hey, I had the Super Cruise last year for a week. I was driving in the Cadillac. Every morning, I got in the car, started driving to work, and I'm like, I want this so bad. It just, it was so, and you're right. You have to keep your head forward and everything, but it it worked. It worked. You're driving down the freeway going, this works. <laughs> this works. This technology works now. So we we can accelerate this process. I still think it's it's going to come to where some, what's the next breakthrough in, in, in autonomous? What's the next thing? Well, to, again, to be clear, Super Cruise, which is great, and I've used it a lot, is driver assistance. Right. And driver assistance and autonomous, and autonomous vehicles are two separate buckets. The, the big thing in the immediate future is going to be improvement in driver assistance. So the Super Cruise system, what's great about it, it's got this camera which l- watches your face and looks at your eyes and like kind of your head angle and makes sure that you're paying attention. Those systems today, I mean, they're good, but they're – it's just tip of the iceberg. Those systems are going to become amazing. And in the future, they'll be able to look at two different people and know that this one is looking at the road, is paying attention, and this one's looking at the road, is about to fall asleep. And when they can do that, driver systems will become amazing. So. There's so much going on. Alex Roy, you're awesome. I'm, I'm glad we got time to do this, man. It's really fun talking to you. Thank you so much, Jim. I really enjoyed it. Uh, and, uh, and, and I'd love to come back sometime and just ask you questions about being a submariner. <laughs> what, wait, I got to have one last question. What kind of boat were you on? I was on a missile submarine um, uh, for, I, I spent eight years in the Navy, so I spent four on the John C. Calhoun. I was on a missile boat, had six patrols, and I was actually going to go to the original Seawolf to be a plank owner, and then they canceled Ooh. the program at the end of the Gulf War, or the end of the Cold War, excuse Ooh. me. So yeah, is the Calhoun was an Ohio, is that an Ohio class? Nope, it was the one before that. It was the George Washington class, the modified one. So we were oh, okay. C four missiles, Trident, the the first Trident submarines before the Trident submarine. But 
Yeah, I loved it. It was the most amazing job I've ever had. And what was your job on the boat? I was a radio man. Isn't that shocking? That makes sense, right? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, have you seen this this computer simulation of, of undersea warfare called Cold Waters? No. In I don't have a lot of spare time, but I'm absolutely obsessed by this simulation called Cold Waters, which has, it's basically three scenarios, 1968 North Atlantic, 19, uh, 1984 North Atlantic, and 2000 South China Sea. And you, could, and you can command any number of American submarines really? against you know, Warsaw Pact. It is fantastic. And very, as realistic a game as I've ever seen, I think you might get a kick out of it. Uh, there's a book to read called uh, Blind Man Bluff. Blind Man's read Bluff. It. You read it? Yeah. <laughs> Great book. There's some stuff in there that we didn't even know about. We're going, they did what? So, wow. yeah. Yeah, it was it was the most amazing thing. And at the time, I, here, here's a parallel, Alex. When you're in the middle of doing this run across the country, you know what you're doing, but you don't really get a perspective on it until you're done, right? Yeah. Same thing in a submarine. I could be underwater for 76 days, come back home, and it's not till I realize, like, one time I went to sea and I came back, and friends of mine had gotten divorced and each married somebody else. While I was gone. And it wow. hits you. And you're like, holy crap, I was gone for three months. So, Well, you know, the, my parallel would be years after I went across country with Dave, um, I became friends with some of the police uh, who were looking for us and investigating us. And, uh, and today uh, I sold one of these retired police officers one of my cars. We were, we were great friends. So. Oh, come on. Did you really? Oh, oh yeah. In fact, just a couple of years ago, I met a number of uh, sheriffs from San Bernardino who were raising money for uh, uh, the, the widows of fallen officers. And I drove cross country with them uh, called the Cannonball, Cannonball Memorial Run. Um, and, you know, you never know who you're going to meet. There's all kinds of folks everywhere you go. Um, you got to stay positive. Well, you got to help me fund. Uh, I want to I want to reboot Smokey and the Bandit. Uh, call me offline and I'll talk to you about that. <laughs> okay, I really do. Ryan Reynolds would be perfect. <laughs> yeah, I actually would be good. Right, Ryan Reynolds, John Goodman is the sheriff. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> right. Oh, I've cast this whole movie, dude. I've I've, I've already worked this thing out. Um. Uh, oh God, what, I totally forgot her name from La La Land. She would be the she would be the bride. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Dude, call me offline and I'll talk to you about this when we're not recording. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, I got to get my Hollywood pitch. Alex Roy, you are awesome, dude. Everybody watch Apex. It's fantastic. Thanks so much. Take care, Jim. Told you, he's an interesting guy. Alex Roy, again, Apex. I would highly encourage you, if you're a gearhead, to watch that. Um, Coming up next, Ted Ryan. Ted Ryan is a historian for Ford Motor Company. Caught up with him right after, actually, the day they unveiled the new Mach 1. And by the way, I had some seat time, which will be coming up in a review of the, uh, I I spent a week in the Ford Shelby 500. (laughs) It's exactly as crazy as you would think. But the really interesting part is a docile creature when you're driving it. If you're just cruising around town in that 500, it's tame, comfortable, wasn't bad at all. The Recaro seats for a big guy like me, a little tight, but man, what an amazing, amazing ride. And after a while, I didn't even, I didn't mind the fact that I didn't have, I was paddle shifting or using automatic. It doesn't have a gear shift like you would do that. I know you're thinking, yeah, I want to pound through the gears. Not in that car. Let that 10-speed transmission work for you. But we'll talk about that later. But now, let's bring in Ted. So what do we, oh, ladies and gentlemen, on the phone here, we're in Big Jim's garage, uh, our buddy Ted Ryan, um, you're the, what is your official title, nom de plure? My official title is Archives and Heritage Brand Manager, which is fancy corporate speak for archivist uh, the Ford Motor <laughs> Company. And we've been drooling over the Mach 1 photos, dude. This, such I've, a cool idea. I've, 
It's such a cool looking Mustang. Have you seen the uh, the teaser video yet? Oh if yeah, not, you need yeah. to go, go to YouTube when, when the when the three when the two historic Mach ones and the new one go in that flying V formation. I get chills. It, it looks amazing. So, what was the original purpose of the Mach One? When, uh, by the way, if you don't know, the Mach One is coming back next year. Twenty twenty one will be available. Probably what Q one of next year. Yeah, spring of spring of twenty twenty one. Okay, but the original Mach One was a bridge between the Mustang and Shelby with a different intent. You had the Shelby GT three hundred and fifty and the GT five hundreds and the Boss and this and that, but a Mach One was a different. Design. Shelby is more about engine. Mach One is about design and engine together. Its very first model year in nineteen sixty nine, it set two hundred and ninety five speed records. Uh, it won two back-to-back SACA uh, championships, uh, showing it had dirt, both speed and handling. And it was a look. It had to look fast, even standing still. And, and uh, the original Mach 1 did it. And frankly, I think this new one does it as well. And it, it's such a balancing act, isn't it? You want to be retro without looking old. I think there's a significant difference. I totally agree because... For example, this one doesn't have the shaker hood, which was so clearly identifiable with the original Mach 1, but we didn't need it. You know, and with the, the original shaker hood actually served a functional purpose to increase airflow uh, into the engine. Well, we don't need it with this one. What this one has, though, is increased aerodynamics. Uh, it's got the look and the feel of the Mustang, but the way that it, it's uh, designed, uh, it increases the speed and increases the handling, uh, and the performance pack on it is just amazing. I can't, I, frankly, I can't wait to drive one. And the wheels, those are Magnum. Is that like a modern variant of a Magnum 500 wheel? It is, and uh, depending on which performance pack or handling pack or appearance pack you get, you're going to get different wheels. You might get a spider pattern. It's going to have some of the, the throwbacks uh, with the, the muted black finish on parts of the trim each one is going to have a special badge and i didn't mention it at the beginning but this is a special edition mach one it's going to be in limited supply however it is going to be a little bit different too it's going to be a worldwide special edition this will be the first really? time that we've done this okay. yes i was wondering about that because gonna... well the mustang's a world car now i mean it, it's it's always kind of you know what was it called before the mustang wasn't it the x or whatever in europe and when, when you you couldn't get one uh, yes actually the cougar there are a couple different things but then you know, we've sold uh, hundreds of thousands of Mustangs worldwide over the past five years. So it's become a true America is exporting the pony card to the rest of the world. And the rest of the world is falling in love with the Mustang. And this Mach 1 is going to be spectacular. The other difference with this one from the original is this one will come with a 10-speed automatic. One of the first performance cars that, that Ford has produced that's going to have an automatic. Uh, transmission as well as the six-speed manual uh, that everybody knows and loves. So is that the select shift that I'm driving right now in the 500? Yes. Which you can't? Yes, but yes, but modified. Because okay. once again, the aerodynamics are different. The oil cooling is everything is take the best of Shelby, the best of the 500, the best, and it all combines into the Mach 1 to get a spectacular track car. I am. It's funny driving the the 500, I, and you know it's human nature, it's gearhead nature that I can I can paddle shift it better than it can do it on its own. You can't. I you can't. No. I mean you can't. You you paddle shift because you want to, not that you would ever need to. I totally agree. And I've got a Mustang in my driveway right now, and and I've got the automatic, and I can't I can't beat the 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 paddle shifting. 
Now, um, a ten, the one thing I was thinking about was, and I noticed with 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 the Mach One, we're going to have that you mentioned track. We're going to have um, you're going to have your heat exchangers on it, more track endurance. Now, we as Americans, we're seeing like this. I, I, I wouldn't even say it's a resurgence. Do you think more and more people are discovering the fun of track time in a car like the Mach One when they go out to a local track and actually drive it is becoming more and more important? I, I do because it, you know it's a way to have fun. You're in your vehicle. Americans love speed. Ford loves speed. I mean, you know the history. Henry Ford set the land speed record in 1904 for a, a period of time. We've always known how to make cars go fast, and with the culmination of the the Mach One. Uh, you're going to have an excellent track car. And people love to go out on the track and, and just have fun. And in Europe, I mean, we, we you know, track days in Europe, you always see in England and stuff, it, it, it's more of a thing. And I, I wonder if somewhere down the road, Ted, we're going to pardon the carp on there. Um, somewhere in the future, when we do get to self-driving cars, autonomous vehicles, whether it's level four or level five, a car like the Mach 1 becomes even more important to me because that's my fun car. That's my release. I 100% agree. And, you know, I uh, used to, to drive older cars as well. And you go to the Walter Mitty specials and you get out on the track in your older car. I mean, it, there's something about getting on the track and revving the car and just having fun with it. And I, I think you're right. It, it is going to be a release. And it is, it's going to be a release as well. And the, the beauty of something like this Mach 1 is it, it takes the Mustang to the pinnacle of the track car. This is the culmination of everything that we do well with the with the GT knowledge and the, the 350 and, and the Mustang knowledge. It, it, it all coalesces into the Mach 1, and it, it, it looks fast standing still. I think it, it does everything it's supposed to do. So is there a unicorn Mach 1 out there like there was the unicorn bullet? Not that I've seen, no. Well, actually, let me rephrase it. Uh, my favorite Mach 1, I'm going to take you back in time, is Diamonds Are Forever when James Bond pulls up in that red Mach 1. I mean, isn't that – that is design, style, beauty, and speed. And when you see him on screen and you know something bad is just about to happen. So where's that car? I don't know. I'm going to have to track that down. We were actually talking about that car the other day, too, because it'll be the 50th anniversary of that movie scene next year. Uh, and uh, trying to find it and trying to to see if we could uh, do something to get it pulled together with, with some of the others. That was the famous scene, too, where he went on two wheels sideways through the through the alleyway. Uh, <laughs> which which Ford Motor Company does not encourage in anyone driving the 2021 Mach 1? No, Ford Motor Company encourages all four wheels to be on the ground at the same time, right. uh, just going fast and safely. That was the dumbest thing I ever had. One of my One of my first cars... Ted, when I was like in high school, I saw this little switch, and you stuck it, it had a little piece of, you know, double back tape. You stuck it on the dash, and it said ejector seat. <laughs> and I thought I was so funny. My friends are like, you're an idiot. I'm like, no, James Bond, man, it's cool. I got an ejector seat. You know, if, if we all lived our life like James Bond, I don't know that we would be around very long. <laughs> no, no. You'd die with a smile on your face, though. It's Hollywood. <laughs> All right, well, I got you on the phone. Uh, obviously, the photos, we've posted the photos up on our garage page as well. All the stuff in the video for, for the new Mach 1, which is just, oh, oh, so beautiful. Such a cool design. But I would be remiss if we don't talk about July 9th. Are you, are you, are you getting ready? Are you finally, we finally going to see the Bronco? Uh, you're finally going to see the Bronco. And there's a couple of uh, teaser events in the meanwhile, so keep your eyes posted on the, the Bronco Instagram page that went live this week and uh, – uh, it's going to be such a relief to have that car out in the wild and be able to talk about it 
and and go through the history of the Bronco and talk about the the, the amazing creation process that that's bringing you the new one. So uh, sit tight over the next couple of weeks. You're going to get more and more and more info on the Bronco, and I can't I can't wait. Are there generational stories you're uncovering as you as you kind of dive into the archives of the Bronco? Jim, I've got so much. I can just tease you by saying that I've worked on this for two years, and we have found so much information on the Bronco, all the stories, the creation stories. Uh, it, it, anybody who's a fan of automobile history and or of the Bronco and or pop culture, uh, sit back. I think you're going to enjoy some of the things that we've uncovered. Which one do you want, the two-door or the four-door? I want a Bronco. <laughs> God, well played. This guy knows what he's doing. Well played, Ted. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Jim. <laughs> and I, I know it's. It, I was thinking about this. I saw a um, the big frame Bronco. The biggest Bronco was what eighties? What am I thinking? Early eighties, late seventies. What would be the big, the big giant Bronco? Uh, the giant Bronco, yeah, late eighties, early nineties. Okay. All right, uh, because yeah, because it, well, it went on the F one fifty platform about that time, so it got bigger, but not exponentially after. Uh, after eighty-two, is there a uh, is there a Bronco that you want uh, the historical one that you would um, that you would love to get your hands on? My favorite two Broncos are I love because it's so unique the Roadster, uh, the Gen One Roadster from '66, and then Big Ollie, uh, the modified Bronco that that won Baja uh, under uh, Pinelli Jones. If I, if I could pick two Broncos from my collection, you know I'm gonna. Put them in the archives, and they're going to be part of Ford Motor Company history. I want Roadster because it harkens back to the Jeep, which was the origin to the Bronco. And then I want Big Ollie because it set the pace for off-road racing. And I know it's not officially a Ford product, but it is endorsed. I want that electric one that the guys at Gateway are building in St. Louis. That that thing looks amazing. does I, I, I love those, but at the same time, it kind of feels weird. Like you feel guilty about driving it? No, just it, – it, you're going to hit the gas, and there's not going to be any noise. There should be noise when you hit the gas on a Bronco. So, like, they have a kid sitting behind you going, blah, 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 the whole time? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully not. <laughs> there's so much going on right now, and I know it's it's been a crazy year and so much, and um, we're going to get you here in the Motor City soon, right? Yes, I'm going to be an official Motor City resident as of uh, June 28th, and I can't wait to move to Detroit. Uh I don't know that my wife is excited about the uh, winners, but we're going we're gonna to make it work. Here's the trick with winter in Michigan, and I was told this a long time ago, and it's 100% true. It, it is counterintuitive. Your, your, your tendency would be to kind of withdraw, right? And, you know, to stay home, sit by the fireplace, read a book, whatever. You got to get out in it. You got to learn how to ski. You got to go hiking in the snow. You got to go ice skating there at Campus Marshes in downtown Detroit. Once you kind of embrace it, it's like anything else. It becomes easier. It really does. I remember I've, I've lived there for two years. Off, oh, that's you right. Know, commuting yeah. every week. So I've done two winters now. But and the, the slogan I go by is there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad clothing. So we'll make sure we're clothed appropriate and just get out and have fun. And just tell her, wait five minutes. The weather will change anyway. You'll be fine. <laughs> yeah. four, four seasons in a week. Man, so much going on for you right now, man. Between the Mach 1, congratulations. We got the Mustang. There's so many things going on. We got our new F-150 as well, um, which I believe there are now 370 billion of those out there. So It feels like that many. <laughs> no, it's cool, though. It, I, I, it, I, it, I, I, I've never seen a vehicle that holds up no matter what. If this year doesn't prove 
how in love people are with the F-150, nothing will. You know, it's an amazing time in Ford Motor Company history, and the only time I would think that can compare back to it would be that the same sweet spot of the 64 through 69 when the Mustang came out, the Mach 1 came out, the Bronco came out. We were winning Le Mans back to back to back to back. And it feels like history repeating itself as we go through the, the new automobile cycle now. We're really hitting our stride. And every one of these new vehicles is designed by people who love cars and love what those cars are doing, our trucks are doing, and it shows. We're making some great, great product right now. Well, and and just as a side note, I mean, I'm going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but I don't think it's enough anymore just to unveil a great car. You got to give me a story. Give me a reason to want this vehicle beyond it's got four seats and a big motor. You know what I mean? And you guys embracing your heritage at Ford is such a powerful tool and it's real. It's not something made up or fabricated with a, with a voice actor. It's the real history of Ford Motor Company, and you're not shying away from it. You're going head-on into it, which is great. I 100% agree. And the, the, the Ford Motor Company heritage over the years is, is coming to life and the product refresh that we're doing. And keep in mind, we've also refreshed the Explorer. Uh, we've refreshed the Escape. And then every one of these products, uh, the, the Mustang, the Mach 1, uh, Bullet a couple of years before that, the, the, the new Bronco. The heritage comes to life, and the storytelling around the cars is there because it's there from the beginning. I, I, I'm just going to tease Bronco. Wait until you see the, the storytelling goals of the Bronco and how the car came to life. You're going to love it. Really? I can't talk about it. You're going to have to wait a couple of weeks. I know. But- I know. I, did, I didn't ask. I didn't ask. Well, I did ask earlier, so I kind of – Kind of pride a little bit there. Man, it's so much good stuff, Ted. And then, um, hey, real quick, there was a movie with Eric uh, Banya, the actor. Have you heard this one called Taming the Beast? I have not. Okay, you need to watch this. It's about him. I just watched this again recently. He had an Australian Ford when he was a kid growing up, and he would race around. It wasn't Bathurst. I think it was Tasmania, one of the, one of the like, endurance races. And he wrecked it when he was young. So he and his mates got together and rebuilt the car. Oh, wow. But here's what yeah, was interesting. I don't want to give the whole thing away, but you'll see in the trailer. He wrecked the car during the race, and they dive into the psychology of car owners because that he didn't wrench it himself, that he wasn't connected to that car. He hit that tree because he didn't care about the car the way a normal person would when they build a car up. That makes total sense. I, so it's called Taming the Beast? Yeah. Yeah, Taming the Beast. Have, and yeah, Eric Van, the uh, guy, you know, from from Black Hawk Down and the Hulk and all that. Yeah, he's a huge yeah. gearhead and it's a Ford, a Falcon. Yeah. Oh, Falcons in Australia. That was the car. Yeah. The Australians were in love with their Falcons. Okay, well, you you sold me. I'm gonna go look for this movie. Fantasy. I did something good today. I didn't get any Bronco info for anyone, but at least I did that. So. <laughs> all right. Hey. You did. Well, I've been watching music documentary. I watched the Eddie Cochran documentary last night. So I'm gonna switch from music to cars. I'll I'll go find this one. What famous people drove Mustangs? Do you know? I mean, uh, I mean, what was the biggest? Everybody drove Mustangs when they came out, especially the convertibles. Is there is there anyone that comes to mind, top of mind, that was a big a big Mustang, a pony gearhead? Uh, well, Jay Leno, but everybody knows Jay Leno, and he's got a, a garage full of cars. Uh, there's been a number of them, uh, you know. But you you, you caught me. I, I didn't have I don't have my notes in front of me, or I haven't looked at that recently. If you'd asked me that uh, six months ago, I could have told you right away. And a little bit, of, a little bit. I'll tell you, famous people who drove Broncos. So I'll tease you with that one once again. 
famous people drove Broncos. Let me see. In 94, I can give you one. <laughs> Did you drive one in 94? <laughs> no. No, not me. Not me. Uh, my, my buddy, my buddy Orenthal did, I think. Um, uh, oh, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> hey, you know what, though? I don't know why people, and, and you don't, I don't expect you to comment on this. Who cares about the date? Uh, the whole thing about the date. I'm like, I, I'd rather release it now. But it, it is part of the, you know, it's, it's a strange part of our history, but we all have strange parts of our history. I remember coming home from dinner with another couple wanting to watch the NBA Finals. And I'm like, why is this Bronco going down the freeway in L.A.? Why do I care? And, and you know, it's just part of the world we lived in it's an historic event we could wake, make you wait another month don't do that why why would you do that that's just mean we had a good conversation ted and you blew it at the end <laughs> no it's just it's coming out you're gonna see it you're gonna have some amazing storytelling and you're gonna hear from people that worked it, it's 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 such a great car and and it's gonna be a great opening it's gonna be a great launch fantastic Mach one f1 so much to talk about with you ted we'll see you when you're here in the motor city thanks for so much for coming to the garage thank you thank you thank you for having me on today all right putting a bow on that one i told you some interesting folks thanks so much to alex roy thank you so much ted ryan everyday ford motor company alex's documentary apex and just both really cool follows on twitter as well if you're looking for info all right we're gonna wrap it up here you can follow me on Twitter. I'm based here in the Motor City at WCSX Gym. See, there's that cottonwood again. It's only like Peter Brady. When it's time to change. Next week, if everything works out right, we're going to talk about the Shelby 500. I spent some seat time in that. And then also one of the wide-body challengers. It's interesting when you're driving a scat pack for under 40 grand. You are hard-pressed to find a better muscle car than that, man. We'll have to get into that. We'll dive into the deep end of that one. You guys, be safe out there on the roads. Enjoy your ride. Get out there and get some fresh air. Talk to you soon.